Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 101, Revelation, the Beast and its Woman. And in this episode, we are going to look at the first half of Revelation chapter 17 to something that John sees of a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And I want to take a little bit of time to unpack what I think that image is communicating, use some portions of the Bible in order to do it, and then to make sure that we are thinking biblically about the way we approach topics, particularly in the Bible, where women are sometimes um, spoken about in what appears to be disparaging ways, and how we can read something like Revelation, understand what is being communicated and make sure as Christians that we are honoring women in the process, not disparaging them. And so I think I have a way in order to show you why what this passage is actually saying is important for us to understand, but an all too often um, way of interpreting the Bible has in fact led many, many people to the exact opposite conclusion. So I'd like to take the time in this episode to address that in line with unbinding the Bible, and I hope you'll stay tuned with me. Let's just jump right in. To begin this week's episode, as is our usual custom, allow me just to read Revelation 17 verses 1 through 8. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, One of the first things that I want to draw your attention directly to um, is the simple fact that the way John is given this vision is repeated almost word for word several chapters later in Revelation. And one of the things that I have been doing on this podcast is trying to show you going forward in the book and backwards in the book to repeat themes that John repeats so that you don't misunderstand what he's talking about. And I have noticed that over the past several weeks, it seems that many of the episodes I've been presenting to you probably sound repetitive for that very reason. Um, Nothing new is necessarily coming to the surface. And that's both a little bit unfortunate, but also to be expected because I'm trying to show you how the book as a whole fits together, not just 
what each individual section happens to be. So let's go forward to a section that you might not have heard me say too much about, and that's what shows up in chapter 21. So let me read for you what chapter 21 verses 9 to 10 say and see if it sounds at all similar to what I just read in Revelation 17. Here's Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, let me reread for you Revelation 17 verses one and verse three. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Did you catch the similarity? The phrase, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues said to me, come and I will show you, and then we have differences. In chapter 17, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And in Revelation 21, we have come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then in both instances, John is carried away in the spirit, first to a wilderness to see the prostitute, and second to a great high mountain to be shown the holy city, Jerusalem. Now we've talked about this, that the holy city, New Jerusalem is in fact the bride. It is a woman and both images are meant to be kept in our minds together. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the New Jerusalem, this city whose foundations is built upon the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone according to Ephesians 2. But here in Revelation 17, another woman is being described, not a pure virgin bride, as Revelation 14 has talked about, but rather as a prostitute, as a whore, seated on many waters, seated on a beast. This picture that we're given in Revelation 17, particularly with its reference to these dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the, lambs, um, in the, in the book of life from the foundation of the world, and its connection with the beast, this woman, as John is using it to be described, is in fact his picture of judgment. This is the way it's been working all through the book of Revelation. And the picture of the bride as a woman, the wife of the lamb, is Revelation's ultimate picture of salvation. That is what's being contrasted here. And one of the biggest ways we know this is the case is because in verse 8, we're told that the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise, or it was and is not and is to come, which way back in the beginning in Revelation chapter 1, we, I tried to identify for you that when the one seated on the throne who is and who was and who is to come, this definition of the beast is a total parody of the Lord God himself, who's the one truly on the throne. All those people in the world who fall down and worship what this woman offers the world in her seductive allure and everything that the beast offers the world in his deceptive ways, this is a parody. This is looking to empire, looking to the beast, right? This looking to the empire as its God, as its way of bringing ultimate worth, ultimate salvation, ultimate deliverance. 
And so I just want to jump right to it, and I want to jump right into how it is then that there is a woman being magnified here that is riding on the back of a beast. And the best way I know how to do it is to bring Richard Bauckham's book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, back into our, our mix. I haven't quoted from this for several months, but it's time now. Um, very insightful, several paragraphs. Allow me just to read them, and then I want to dive in to looking at, at the fact that a woman is being used in this way as well. So Bauckham says that the beast represents the military and political power of the Roman emperors. And we've looked at this, especially in Revelation chapter 13. Babylon is the city of Rome in all her prosperity gained by economic exploitation of the empire. Thus, the critique in chapter 13 is primarily political. And the critique in chapters 17 and 18, which we're in just now, is primarily economic. But in both cases, they're also deeply religious. The beast and the harlot are intimately related. The harlot rides on the beast because the prosperity of the city of Rome at the empire's expense and her corrupting influence over the empire rest on the power achieved and maintained by imperial armies. Rome's subjects were persuaded to accept and to welcome her rule by the ideology of empire. And although the harlot lives well at her client's expense, she also offers them something, these kings of the earth. She offers them the supposed benefits of Roman rule. This is no doubt the ideology of the Pax Romana, vigorously promoted throughout the first century AD, according to which Rome's gift to the world was the peace and security Rome provided within the borders of her empire and thereby the conditions of the empire's prosperity. Rome, the self-proclaimed eternal city, offered security to her subjects, and her own dazzling wealth seemed a prosperity in which her subjects could share. But Revelation portrays this ideology as a deceitful illusion. It is the wine with which the harlot intoxicates the nations, offered in the cup whose exterior is golden, but which contains abominations. Now that, I think, is a really helpful way for us to launch into our discussion. What we are looking at here is Babylon, Rome, as it's being masked and, and covered over, but any empire in the world system who might be, might be thinking of something like this. Um, Eugene Boring, in his commentary, says it this way, from the beginning of the vision, Babylon's reign over earth's kings and residents is portrayed as seduction to sexual immorality. But this is a pervasive prophetic metaphor for spiritual infidelity, that is, idolatry. If you go and read the book of Ezekiel, for an example, uh, particularly verses 15 to 34, the Lord describes what his own people's covenant marriage relationship to him was and how their desire to follow after other gods was literally like them spreading their legs to every lover that passed by. They were dependent upon these other nations for military strength, for economic stability, for national security, for lots of the same kinds of things that nations and empires today spend a lot of their time fretting over. But Boring goes on. The description of the harlot's wealth, her making the nations drunk, her boastful self-confidence, and her collapse are derived from ancient prophecies against pagan nations that idolize their own political military power and against Tyre, 
which boasted in its affluence through trade. The harlot Babylon shows us Rome from the perspective of the spiritual threat of compromise through economic seduction, yet she also transcends Rome and encompasses every expression of the idolatry that worships economic prosperity and cultural achievement. Now, I bring all of that up because I think it's really important for us to keep in mind, number one, the way Revelation chooses here to describe women is not necessarily in any way of a different form than the way Revelation has already chosen to use um, a description of a woman as a spotless, pure bride. The way the Old Testament speaks almost completely is in covenant marital fidelity between Israel and her God. And when she commits idolatry by bowing down to other gods, the Lord calls that adultery. It's a breaking of their covenant relationship. And even in the New Testament, when Paul speaks about the marriage relationship between husband and wife, he lets them know that that marital covenant is simply a picture of Jesus's relationship with his church, which is ultimately the connection that that, um, the Lord has wanted us to make ever since Genesis chapter one um, or chapter two, rather, when that idea was first introduced to us as readers of the Bible. So the predominant theme is always looking forward to what the Lord is going to be able to do for us as a covenant people, as a community of people. What the whore now is representative of in this um, analogy is the fact that the power and the strength and the might that the beast provides through its military strength, through its, um, through its power, the, the, the whore rides on the back of the beast, is therefore supported by the beast in her lust for economic advancement through all of the opportunities that present themselves to people in empires where the political power is strong enough to squelch their enemies and offer, quote unquote, peace to their citizens. Again, that's the Pax Romana. It's the Roman peace. It's give allegiance to us and all of your needs will be met. And so I think it's important for us to to talk through that in an economic sense, because several of the commentaries that I have looked at um, in the book of Revelation It's interesting that that Revelation has actually fallen under attack in recent years for being a book against women. And the labels that are used and probably referencing the passage I'm looking at right here are disparaging to women. I mean, anytime the Bible refers to anyone, even if it's Israel or a covenant people or whatever, as whores and prostitutes, you know, some I've read in, in the Christian church They just want to dismiss those kinds of accusations as baseless and just move on. And I I remember growing up in a context um, where if a woman chose to be a prostitute, well, then whatever disrespect she received for it was on her. And sadly, I've begun to be not only challenged, but greatly bothered by that kind of worldview the kind of worldview that sort of looks out and sees sexual deviancy, sexual brokenness, and wants to paint it as an only a one-sided thing, wants to think predominantly that people are just sexually promiscuous and are godless as a result. Because what tends to happen 
is when those are, are spoken about like that, it's almost as if any person who finds themselves in any type of a sexual relationship, it is almost always um, a belief that it's just this person chose it and therefore, you know, <laughs> hey, that's what they want, right? Um, if, if you don't, if, if don't want to have a, a life like that, then don't, you know, don't do that, right? And so I, I, just, I sort of want to talk through this because I've been really pondering the best way to bring this out, the best way to intersect the ideas that I think John's addressing here with very real things that happen in our world today. And I'm sorry if I'm going to mumble through some of this. I wrote out lots of it, but some of this is just bothering me and, and I don't know the best way to say it. So I'm just going to try and trust that you'll forgive me for the sloppiness that this episode might might come across in. But I, I want us to think for just a second um, in, in our context today, in our culture, particularly as Americans, um, when somebody says the words, the economy, um, my, my, hesit- or my, my, my hunch is that most people say those words, um, we speak about the economy almost as if it were alive. Um, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe I'm off my own little world, but particularly with the election, uh, things happening and people are always talking about the economy, the economy, who trusts, you know, more people trust Trump with the economy than they, than they trust, you know, uh, Biden and, and so on and so forth. But in most discussions that I've been a part of, even in Christian circles in which I grew up, the economy was almost only spoken about as a good and wholesome thing something that every presidential candidate promised to strengthen, right? right, And, you know, we're going to vote him in as a result of that. The economy was the unquestioned good of this world. The one thing that would provide flourishing for humanity and wait for it, the God that everyone was looking to for their salvation, I don't know if that's too harsh of a way to say it or too blunt, but there it is. Um, and what I've noticed is that what is strangely absent from the conversations, at least that I've been having, was any talk of the corruption of the systems or structures that oppressed human beings in order to advance financially in whatever form that took. So, for instance, the economy, right? It's this thing. Can you reach out and touch it? No. Can you see it? No. Do you experience it? Sure. Is it an ideology? Yes. Is it a mindset? Sure. What is John saying? John is saying that despite all of its pearls and beauty and glamour and allure and drawing people in and you name it secretly, this is a prostitute underneath the surface who is drawing people in and is uh, what he says in verse five, or I'm sorry, um, the, the, in her hand, she's holding a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Part of that cup, she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We've looked at in Revelation six, very real people suffering under the hands of the kinds of wars, bloodshed, famine, and death that result when the world chaotically goes its own way and does its own thing. And yet here, I think the economy now is being painted in a slightly different picture because in the Roman Empire, despite all of the great promises that Rome could provide things for you, that blessing, 
that economic advancement, that economic prosperity, and so on and so forth came at the hands of violent oppression for some. Now, that doesn't mean that the economy as we experience it today is necessarily that, not at all. But what's interesting is that John is not writing from the perspective of those who have taken advantage of the economy and made it a great name for themselves. John is writing from the perspective of those who have been squeezed out. John is writing it from the perspective of a victim. He's on Patmos writing this letter to the seven churches. But I want us to look for just a second. I, um, I, I want us to look at, um, as, as to take a step back. And to look at the ideas of women and the way they are spoken about um, from the whole biblical narrative, if we can do that. And and I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but if if I want to think about women and the way the Bible talks about women, the the way the Bible looks at women, here's one of the things that I think is important to understand. And this is maybe why John is, is using this kind of an image. But if you go all the way back to Genesis 16, we've got the picture of Hagar. Hagar was taken advantage of by Sarah and Abraham. She was an Egyptian servant who um, Abraham and Sarah and um, Abraham acquired after they had spent a little bit of time in Egypt. And when Abraham realized that Sarah wasn't going to be able to get pregnant and have a son, Sarah came up with the idea to use Hagar to do that. And what is God's concern for a woman when she is used wrongfully at the hands of people who have power or authority over her. Well, Genesis chapter 16, Hagar is privileged to be the very first person in the entire Bible who gives the Lord God a name. She names him as the God who sees, who sees her pain and her um, despair as a result of being used and abused by Sarah and Abraham. And then when Sarah realizes that she does eventually get pregnant, you know, and has her own son, and then Hagar's son does not treat Isaac the way that Sarah thinks he should, and so she casts Hagar and Ishmael out. And the Lord meets them and provides for them and cares for them. And in Genesis 34, you've got one of Jacob's um, daughters, Dinah. She doesn't seem to get as much attention, sadly, as all the the 12 sons do. But Dinah um, is, you know, Shechem the Hittite in Genesis 34. Takes a look at Dinah. He recognizes her. He follows the exact same pattern that Adam and Eve do in Genesis 3 in the fall. He sees something that he likes. He labels it as good, and he reaches out, and he takes it except he's not taking a piece of fruit. He is taking a woman. And Shechem rapes Dinah. He rapes her. What is God's concern for women who are not only used and abused by those in authority over you or in power over you, but who are lusted after by power-hungry men and are raped? Well, the Lord cares deeply for Dinah. And so do her brothers, And her brothers actually take vengeance and they come up with a very creative way of drawing in Shechem and his men and they kill them all as a result. It uh, upsets Jacob a little bit because he's not sure now how he's going to navigate this um, societal relationship now with the Hittites, but that's not his problem. According to his two sons, whose direct sister was Dinah, 
because how dare they treat her like a prostitute? She's a victim, and they want her to be honored as a victim. And then you get to Tamar in Genesis chapter 37, and you have Judah, who is what we will later know is the, the, the son through whom the Messiah will come. You know, King David will come through the line of Judah, but in direct contrast to Joseph's fidelity in Egypt, where uh, Potiphar's wife is attempting to seduce Joseph, there you might have an actual picture of someone who is being unfaithful. She's being unfaithful to her call as... Um, you know, as somebody who's married to Potiphar, she sees Joseph, she wants him, and, and Joseph flees. He leaves his cloak in her hand. She ends up screaming about it, makes up a lie, and gets Joseph thrown in jail. But the reader is, is following along saying, wow, that's a very interesting way of being faithful to your God when someone in your midst is being unfaithful to their own relationship with their spouse. Wow, Joseph, that, that's an exemplary uh, model. Well, in the very next chapter, Judah um, has a few sons and he marries one or he, one of his sons marries Tamar and he mistreats her and the Lord kills him. And so his second son, the first son's brother takes Tamar to be his wife and doesn't want to give offspring to, um, Hagar or to Tamar in, in to benefit her old, his, his older brother. And so he doesn't, and the Lord strikes him dead as well. And then Judah looks down and he sees Tamar. And he sees that his third son should be given to her, but he's afraid for his son's life. And instead of honoring Tamar as a result and, and recognizing that maybe his sons are acting in ways that are unbecoming of the way sons should live, he instead pulls his youngest son away and won't give him to Tamar. And he leaves her high and dry. He leaves her economically vulnerable. He leaves her you know, out and, and, and she doesn't have anywhere to go. And so Tamar dresses herself up like a prostitute. And when Judah comes to town, her father-in-law, she, he's looking after mourning the death of his wife. He's looking for a little bit of, of intimacy with a woman. She dresses herself up in this way and has sex with him. And what's really interesting about this scene is he comes to find out several months later that she is pregnant and he wants to stone her. And she comes forward in the story and says, okay, whoever it is whose staff this is, whose cord, whose signet ring, who gave me these things as you know, proof that blah, 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 we, you know, we're in this relationship and you're going to offer me this or that or the other thing. And he comes to discover that it's in fact his own daughter-in-law and she's pregnant because of him. And he utters to her these really strange words, you are more righteous than I, for I did not give my son to you when that was my responsibility. And so you've got Hagar, who's abused and used by those in power and authority over her, Dinah, who is raped by a person who is eagerly wanting sex. And now in Tamar, you have somebody that the Bible identifies as being more righteous than Judah. Why? Because Tamar was in a vulnerable position sexually. How was she vulnerable? Through the economy. She has no means to provide for herself. Her husband is dead. The Lord killed him. And then the second son was also killed. And then the third son was, was prevented from, from being given to her. Well, then you have Rahab in the book of Joshua. When the Israelites are entering into the promised land, is Rahab, we're told, is a prostitute. 
She's there in a city, which is most likely a military outpost in Canaan, the city of Jericho. And yet Rahab graciously hides spies sent in by the Lord to spy out the land. She lies to her own leaders of her own people, telling them that the spies were here and then they left. They went this way, which wasn't true. She was hiding them on her roof. And it says that she feared the Lord. And as a result, when the people of Israel came in and defeated the the city of Jericho, Rahab and her entire family were saved. So the way the Bible speaks about these situations is just very different. Think about Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. We're not told a lot about her backstory. All we are told is that she is a woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. And then she follows Jesus around all the time in his ministry. Or the woman at the well in John chapter four, where Jesus goes out of his way to meet a Samaritan woman in the heat of the day, a woman who is there because she has had five husbands and the man she's living with right now is not her husband. Here is clearly in in the minds of so many people thinking of like, oh, this immoral woman, oh, this this terrible person. And yet Jesus' compassion and his kindness and his love for her, the intimate, close, you know, kind ways that he speaks with her, letting her know that he has come just to meet her and wants her to intimately know him. And then there's the woman caught in adultery several chapters later in John chapter 8 where these Pharisees come and and they bring this woman to Jesus and he cares for her and says, I don't condemn you. He who is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone and he won't let anybody do it. And so what, what the gospels communicate, what the Bible communicates is an overwhelming sense of individual women. And yet God has a very considerate, kind, compassionate angle for all of them. He loves them. But then you also have women in the Old Testament and some in the New who um, don't quite fit that same picture. You've got a Delilah in the book of Judges. Maybe you know this story, but Samson, right, was one of the judges of Israel. And Delilah was a Philistine woman. And with her own Philistine leaders, she connected, Delilah got connected with Samson. And Samson, you know, was in love with her. He thought she was hot. And so she eventually wears him down and gets him to tell her the secret of his strength. And then the Philistines come in and they capture him. Now, that's a terrible picture. That is a picture of some unfaithfulness. She's in a covenant relationship with Samson now. He's entered into one against the Lord's wishes, right? Because she's a Canaanite. And now her loyalty is actually to her own people who want the upper hand on Samson. And so they use Delilah and his broken relationship with her in order to get that. And then you've got Jezebel who marries King Ahab in the book of first Kings. And she is a tyrant. We've already looked at Jezebel a little bit, but the, the, the crazy actions she does on behalf of Baal, who was the Canaanite deity, she wrecks. Ahab doesn't know what to do as a king. He feels torn between two issues, serving the way the Lord would have him serve or serving the way Baal would have him serve. And it's all economic, the entire thing. You go read about it. In several chapters, 1 Kings, oh, I don't know, 15, 16 through chapter 22 when she dies. But Jezebel commits atrocities um, against Naboth, number one, which is a purely economic advantageous move on Jezebel's part. And so what you have in the Bible is this scattering of women. And here we have John who's elevated one view of a woman 
the bride, the pure spotless bride woman. And then he's elevated this other woman, this disparaging. This is not to critique women or to necessarily praise women, uh, although you could look at that both ways. And that's really why I don't, I don't let the critiques rest too harshly because John is simply using language to elevate one and to put one in a, in a lower position. And so even the book of Proverbs does this. If you read the first several chapters of Proverbs, Proverbs speaks about wisdom coming to you as a woman And it speaks about folly or foolishness coming to you as a woman. So it's drawing on the fact that young men are impressionable by cute young women and want to be drawn into whatever it is that those women are interested in so as to get her to be interested in you. This is just a normal part of life. And so Solomon picks up on that theme and uses lady wisdom and Lady Folly who cry out in the streets for, for people to come in and to have a feast with her. Well, this is metaphorical language. It's just imagery painting a picture for you. But, but go, read, go read Proverbs. Um, read the first several chapters, particularly in verse 9, or chapter 9 rather, and then go read chapter 31, which I know is often spoken about as the virtuous woman, and it's sometimes applied in... in church contexts to a faithful wife. And I think you can do that. I think there are um, possibilities there, although I wouldn't want you ever to overburden a woman by showing her the immense number of things that that woman actually does. Um, I have seen some people who have felt crushed under the weight that this is the ideal woman, and yet no woman on the planet can actually do these kinds of things. God forbid someone ever hold their wife or their mother or their aunt or their grandmother up to a standard like Proverbs 31. I I know I feel like I'm digressing here, but if you read the book of Proverbs the way I think Proverbs ought to be read, you recognize that the call for lady wisdom and lady folly, by the end of the book of Proverbs, Solomon has chosen the right one and now wisdom is working for him and is meeting all of his needs and is showing him that this is the path that, it, that brings true blessing. I don't think the woman in Proverbs 31 is a real woman. I think it's the same kind of woman that, that Solomon had been talking to all throughout the book. Now, that's just my opinion on that. I think I have good reason to think that that's the case, but take that or leave that. It's fine. Why me? But the reason why I bring all of this up is because this first group of women that I mentioned, uh, Hagar, Dinah, Tamar, Rahab, Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, listen to me closely. This first group of women are caught in the oppressive, patriarchal, economically exploitative systems that destroy human lives by using them for their own selfish purposes. The second group The Delilah, Potiphar's wife, Jezebel. The second group are women in league with the oppressive, patriarchal, economically exploitative systems that destroy human lives by using them for their own selfish purposes. So if we want to get to the root of the biblical way of thinking about these situations, we have to be aware of what is happening here. 
And when I come back back in just a moment, I'd like to kind of further explain exactly what I mean. Now, I have been around Christians most of my life and being as interested as I am in, in reading the Bible, I do tend to notice the way people approach passages of the Bible. And I usually just listen and I tuck away what they say. But one of the things that I have picked up over the years, and um, I don't think this is unique to my experience, this is probably, I think I can say with fairly um, a fair amount of confidence that this is probably the case. Um, I'd say most modern readers of scripture uh, think that the purpose of stories like the ones I've been listing for you, you know, Hagar and Dinah, Tamar, Rahab, however, Mary Magdalene, woman at the well, woman caught in adultery, that kind of thing, um, are oftentimes there to show individuals making good or bad decisions. Um, and therefore, as I shared way back at the beginning of the episode, many people even think that the Old Testament is written for that reason, like it's there as moral examples. So we find an individual, hey, I'm an individual, um, you know, be like um, David, don't be like Samson, you know, be like, don't be like Jonah, be like Daniel, that kind of thing, right? So we read them as individuals and just imagine that that's exactly what, you know, the Lord wants us to do. Um, but by doing that, people tend not to notice the systems that are the root or at least underlying causes of many of those same decisions. And I, I tried to show you some of those um, with Hagar. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were complicit in that trouble for her. Um, a power-hungry Shechem the Hittite was problematic for Dinah. That's what we know as rape. Like these things are real. They certainly exist. Um, and, and so in my mind, what's most ironic and unfortunately also at the same time, the most sad is that because the individual idea is so deeply rooted in our Western mind, individual women in sexually exploitative or broken relationships are oftentimes viewed not only as the problem, but the very systems that are benefiting from that sexual exploitation are entirely ignored. And so in our world today, and regrettably, even in some churches, prostitutes are viewed with disdain right from the start as if every prostitute simply chose to be one and that if they really wanted to get out, they could. Now, I, I say this is sad because the real prostitutes, according to Revelation 16, the systems of economic exploitation using women's bodies as a way to make money rarely get any attention at all. Instead, all of the weight of the problem is placed on women. Women who for any number of reasons find themselves caught in abusive, exploitative, manipulative, broken, shameful, fearful circumstances only to be told by those from the outside that they are gross or that they are sluts or that they are unfit for human interaction. Now, I know this might be coming across as a little bit of a surprise, but for the last couple of years, I have been chewing on this. Um, I have read, um, lost count of the number of books I've actually picked up on sexual abuse taking a look at the psychological realities that come, that come about as a result 
of sexual abuse. I've listened to a handful of podcasts. I've um, read other books on people who have been in prostitution and the clarity that comes to them once they get out and are able to look back and assess their lives while they were broken. But in the moment, mincing no words regarding how they would have thought about you or thought about what you were telling them about how to run their life and would have told you to just you know mind your own business. But once they step out, are able to see things a little more clearly. And I do not claim to be any kind of an expert at all, but here's one thing I can tell you. The psychological trauma that countless thousands and millions of people, not, not just women, okay, don't, don't misunderstand me. There is sexual abuse that also happens to boys and to men. But across our globe today, there are some 40 million people caught up and trapped in the um, sex trafficking world in some form of sexual uh, brokenness. And when it comes time to talk about prostitution, it is not simply a matter of, oh, this girl is in prostitution, therefore she must love it, she must be a deviant. And I want you to understand what I'm saying. I grew up in a setting which just had these underlying principles at work. And I've actually, I'm just gonna be honest with you for a couple of minutes, but I have been married for 20 years And during my marriage, I have had a lot of things that I have had to undo regarding the certain things that I used to think and sort of was, was grow up thinking. I never heard them explicitly. They were just kind of understood. I don't remember specific times when they were said, but it was almost like, you know, hey, don't ever be alone with a woman who's not your girlfriend or your spouse because, you know, that you're just the 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 temptation to do something wrong, you know, is is definitely going to present itself, and and the, you know there could be a, an element of wisdom there, but the way it was often spoken about was that okay, well, girls are here to protect guys' purity in the church, and girls are here to make sure that guys don't do things that they shouldn't do. It's not the guy's responsibility or the guy's fault because you know he can't control the way he thinks about these sort of things, but and so what happens is subconsciously, or maybe it was very conscious from the leaders in my churches, I don't really know what was going on in their minds at the time, but subconsciously you begin to think that the responsibility for purity falls on women. And what it does in fact ignore are the countless thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people who suffer under these advantages Right? It is economically advantageous in the prostitution and sex trafficking industry, which is an ungodly amount of money that comes pouring in per year in this type of relationship, in these types of interactions with other men. And so here's just something that I think you know, we need to stop and we need to ponder for just a second. And that is, are you ready for it? Here's the worst part of all of the things when women are caught in these things or, or they, they can't escape or how is it that we're looking at people from the outside? Here's the worst part, right? If men stopped paying for sex, prostitution would end worldwide tomorrow. It would be over. No more exploitation, no more brokenness, no more wrecked lives. It'd be done. It'd be gone forever. But wouldn't you know it, because of the deceptive ways of the prostitute Babylon, 
The prevailing narrative is that women are to blame primarily for this corruption, not men. And I'm here to tell you that is a lie. If you have bought into that narrative, you've been deceived. There is always within reality a deep, deep, deep tension between broken systems where money is being exchanged between people at the exploitation, the manipulation, the oppression, the abuse of some people for the economic advancement of others. There is always that reality. And then there also exists individual choices and decisions that people do make in the middle of those systems. But I have listened to enough former prostitutes talk and I have read enough about the things that they say to understand and to come to realize of all the people that are in that system, money and power is always the reason they're there. They find themselves homeless. They find themselves jobless and they realize without knowing everything that's involved, well, here's a way I could at least afford rent. Here's a way I could at least provide for my kids. And the deception and the lies of the prostitute Babylon convince them in their states of desperation that this at least would be better than starving, that this at least would be better than freezing, that this at least would be better than being raped on the street because you have no way to protect yourself against other people. But I want us to start thinking about that reality in terms of, wow, talk about horrible choices that somebody is faced with. But once they're in that system, the reasons why they're there are for the power and the money of those who prostitute them out. And I'm not going to get into a ton more about this. I realize now I, I, maybe I am just rambling, but I really feel like John is painting for us this picture of the way a woman really rides on a beast and the economic advancement that Rome promised the world, the great life that everyone could have if you would just give allegiance to the empire or in John's words, give allegiance to this beast who was, who is not and who is to come, right? This parody, this one who's going to guarantee you everything you think you need, but turns a blind eye to those who suffer in the wake of that pursuit. John is here to say that the judgment that is coming on the great city Babylon or any type of system or structure that exploits others for its own advantage, in the end, those kinds of structures are going to be judged. The people who have been under the thumb of oppression from the beginning are going to be liberated by the one who's come to set the real captives free. And I want the church have eyes to start seeing the victims to start thinking through when you see a situation to think to yourself, could something deeper than what I can see on the surface be going on under their surface that's causing them to choose this particular lifestyle? Because for the past several years, my wife has worked at an abused, at, at a domestic violence shelter. And the stories she shares with me are so sad because people are legitimately caught in this life they don't know any other world than a place where they get in a relationship with a man who mistreats them, who abuses them, 
who is cruel to them and unkind to them. And I stand outside of it looking in and I think, goodness, just don't choose somebody like that. And then you start getting into the psychology of what happens to people who are abused and who are treated this way. And their views of themselves become such that they do not see themselves or feel themselves to be worthy of any other person but that kind of person. It's alluring, but then it's a trap. And when you think you're taking in sweet wine, it ends up being a cup full of abominations. It's destructive from the inside. And I really believe that the church needs to be the kind of people who can look into a situation despite what the world says about it and recognize hurting people where they're actually hurting. Recognize victims where they're actually victims. Stop siding with the people that look all clean and polished and orderly because sometimes the clean, polished, orderly people are power hungry money hungry and attention hungry and are abusing those in their midst who aren't worth their time. And yes, I'm going to bring up the Me Too movement because it needs to be brought up. And I really, really want to strongly discourage Christians from ever being among those who say, oh my goodness, somebody else just brought up some allegation, some baseless accusation against some person. They wanted their 10 or 15 minutes of fame. And now that, you know, it's been proven to be untrue, blah, 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 blah. I want Christians to stop saying that because for a woman to open up in public about something that happened to her multiple years ago is never for her, quote unquote, 15 minutes of fame. Abuse victim after abuse victim after abuse victim. I'm not I'm sorry to say victim. I, I mean to say survivor. Uh, I'm trying to change the way that I talk about this. And, and I do apologize if you're listening to this and this is your story. I'm really sorry. Survivors of abuse have told story after story after story of how horrible it was internally carrying around their abuse with no one knowing, but how much worse it got when they finally worked up the courage to tell someone about it and those people didn't believe them. I cannot count the number now of testimonies I've heard that have, that have repeated that exact same story. Christians should never be among those who do not believe a sexual abuse survivor when he or she tells you their story. And so there are new books being written now called We Too, and it's recognizing four churches uh, Mary DeMuth is an author of, of that particular book who's talking to churches because these things are now happening in churches. People are coming forward and talking about things that youth pastors have done that have hurt them. And I'm bringing all this to the surface because these are the things John's addressing. The Bible addresses the real prostitutes, the real things as these economically exploitative practices that crush human lives. And in Revelation 18, which we're almost to, John flat out says it. He refers to all of the things that these systems trade amongst one another. And the last one in his list is human lives. Humans made in the image of God, which are not treated as honorable because of the economic advancement. 
And when people choose to look at the, the economy, right, this God that drives so much of the show, when they choose to look at the economy and only see it as a decked out beautiful woman in gold and pearls and all these things, John wants us to open our eyes and see that if it is truly riding on an oppressive system, the beast, that it in fact is a whore, not because John hates women, but because John wants women to be liberated from this crap. And sadly, in the church, the way I've grown up anyway, we don't talk about these kinds of things. So I do get a little fiery and a little passionate. And sometimes I repeat myself a lot because this is new to me. I'm learning these things now, sadly, in my 40s, but better then than in my 60s. But I want us to talk about this from systemic angles as well as individual angles and recognize that the relationship between the two becomes a convoluted mess And Christians need to think long and hard about how best to care for people who are both caught in systems and, of course, have individual complicity there. Do women go back to men who abuse them because they crave love? Yes, they do. Why do they? Sometimes they do because they never received it in their homes from their parents. Sometimes they did receive it in their home from their parents and somebody stole their innocence when they were a child. But they dare not tell anybody because they might be in a setting, God forbid a Christian setting, where anybody who experiences anything sexual is made to feel guilty and bad for being a bad person. So you don't tell anybody about that then, because who's going to paint themselves into a corner to be then told by the leaders of the church or your family or whatever that you're just a sinful person, you must have wanted it, you must have asked for it, and you didn't know, and you know you need to dress differently now because that's somehow your fault. That was the garbage that was being circulated throughout the years that I was growing up. Not because my parents said that to me or even because my youth leaders did, but it was sort of the culture. The way you talked was you know, avoid those, you know, promiscuous girls and just go after nice girls or whatever they would say to us. I I don't even fully remember. But the fact is we can live in an oppressive system or a patriarchal system or an economically exploitative system that destroys human lives by using them for their own selfish purposes. And I might add just one more to this and then I'll wrap it up with a couple recommendations for you of things you can do to talk about this more. There's one additional area, I think, where this lie is being circulated, that it is the woman, right? She's the problem. And, and it ignores this idea that, uh, guess what? If men would quit paying for sex, maybe we wouldn't have prostitution in the world at all. And that's the actual truth, uh, believe it or not. Um, but we're looking at the relationship, right, between individuals and these systems that exploit them, but also looking at the idea that it is not just women's responsibility, And I want to just bring this one up, the never-ending discussion about abortion. Okay, I want to make it very clear. I love the unborn. I think God loves the unborn. I think God himself, who's crafted this small child in the womb, loves what he has made. And he desires for his own people to love that child as well. And I believe that the Lord can bring glorious and beautiful things out of brokenness. And so I know in this discussion, there are all sorts of things that go on. Well, what do you do in a situation of rape? And what do you do in a situation um, where, you know, the mother can't afford to take care of the child? Or what do you do in a situation where the baby's deformed? And on and on and on. There's endless discussions, right? But as Christians, 
I think we're called to be deeper thinkers than what the culture is willing to, to give us, at least as they frame the discussion. And part of what bothers me about the way the discussion is framed is why the, so much of the rhetoric centers on women. Um, I think this is a problem from the beginning, and I don't think Christians should participate in it in the way that the rest of the culture does. Here's what I mean. Why is it that the woman is being told what to do with her body? Why isn't this conversation talking about the man? Why isn't the man front and center in this discussion? Did that unwanted pregnancy not involve a man? Why aren't child support laws being given more of our attention? Why aren't men held responsible for getting women pregnant? Or how about this one? Why are women the ones to take birth control and not the men? Oh, that's right. Because in the 1970s, when birth control first hit the market, it was directed toward men. And men complained that they didn't like the side effects of it. And so they started making it for women. How about that? Men not liking the side effects of birth control, but somehow women are the ones who now have to bear the brunt of that because talk to any woman you've ever known who's taken birth control and she'll tell you she doesn't like it. She doesn't like what it feels like. Why does the rhetoric center around the woman's right to choose and not on the man's right to take responsibility? I want you to see it. I want you to feel it, okay? I'm asking these questions not to be a jerk, but because I want us to think this isn't being talked about in the right way because it sounds conspicuously similar to the woman caught in adultery that the Pharisees brought to Jesus that I mentioned in John chapter eight. Where was the man? Why isn't the man there as well? It makes absolutely no sense to me. Even in the narrative, the Pharisees say in John eight, verse four, teacher, this woman was caught, has been caught in the act of adultery. Huh, caught in the act, huh? Meaning caught with the man she was committing adultery with. So then where's the man? Is he less to blame for the adultery than the woman? What kind of a hypocritical sideshow is this? I think that's part of why Jesus addresses it the way he does. Because who knows, man, if that woman wasn't even set up by a man just so she could be, who knows what's happening, okay? We don't know. What we know is that Jesus takes his finger, starts writing in the sand. I don't even know what he writes there. But he says, whoever's without sin, be the first to throw a stone. Jesus recognized something was that these men were both looking to trap him and looking to ruin a woman's life. And yet were they really interested in faithfulness? Were they really interested in fidelity? What Jesus seems to imply the answer is no, because they shamefully all walk away when they realize they can't get him to bite on the, on the, the systemic oppression that he had just inserted into the situation. These men were acting like the woman riding on the beast in mistreating a woman and claiming that she was the very thing that they were embodying. And I think Jesus called them on it. And I think he graciously and freely liberated this woman from their condemnation, exhorted her to go live her life in a righteous way, and then told her that he doesn't condemn her. That's the Jesus I know. That's the Jesus we read about in the gospels. That's the Jesus that the church is supposed to embody. And I think we need a lot of work on our part as the church, as Christians, to start thinking about our world differently, 
to start thinking about brokenness differently, to start thinking about exploitive, exploit, ec- economic exploitation differently. Again, I am not saying that everything that makes, you know, earns a buck or is a business practice or anything like that is corrupt. I'm not saying that at all. It's just we cannot turn a blind eye to thinking that everything we see is just some beautiful decked out woman, but that sometimes when real lives are at stake, people suffer under the hands of these things. And I don't want us to be complicit in that. And neither does John, because these very structures that oppress and exploit are going to be destroyed. And if we are caught in that and play the ignorance card, like so many people claim to want to use, you know, the get out of jail free card, I don't think that's being faithfully responsible as Christians that we shrug our shoulders or plug our ears or pretend that we don't see these things all around us. What, what powerful witness do we have if we are unable to, number one, speak truth to power and critique things that need to be critiqued? But number two, truly reach in and be an arm of, of embrace to someone who's hurting because of things that were outside of their control or things that they found themselves in that didn't want to be. And so a fantastic book that I came across several months ago is called Paid For, My Journey Through Prostitution by Rachel Morin. And Rachel is from Ireland and she speaks about several years of her life, what led her into prostitution, what life was actually like in prostitution and what her life has been like since leaving it. And I highly recommend the book. It is um, incredibly good and I think would open your eyes to knowing some of the brokenness that's actually happening, which is why I think this is a good image that John uses to describe it because this economic uh, beast is the real prostitute. Um, way much, way, so much more than many of the women who are actually caught in it. And then there is a free documentary on YouTube, which you can find called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. And it is about a 90 minute documentary about prostitution from all over the world, the ways that it looks different in different cultures, which is also incredibly helpful, particularly as Um, It relates to the way we think about sex trafficking and how prostitution fits into sex trafficking, um, which is oftentimes a thing that many people don't think are the same. They pity these small children who can't do anything, but as far as women in America, um, they don't put them in the same category, sadly, and I would encourage you to start. But you don't have to take my word for it. I would encourage you to watch that documentary. I'll try to make a link to it in the show notes. Um, Again, that's nefarious merchant of souls. And I think that's a very good way to define it. People are being sold. And that's precisely um, the way the Bible talks about it as well. So I know that was a lot this week and it was random even to me. So I do apologize for that, but would love any feedback you have from this episode or any others. Look for several by the book episodes coming up in the next few weeks. Um, as well as another sermon, one that I think will try to help us continually get our hands around these ideas. But I hope you all have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time.